you're made to believe that you should follow a certain pattern in order to be successful. It's effectively why people go to go to school, universities, read books. It's like, what's the formula? If I do A plus B plus C equals success, happiness, etc. But but oftentimes, I don't think there is a formula as, as for that type of success and happiness. I really think someone should figure it out for themselves. And Once upon a time, there were tens of thousands of makers struggling. Every day, they built for hours and hours but didn't ship and didn't earn enough income. One day, the No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter came to help them find a way. Because of this, makers became founders and earned the money they deserve. Because of this, founders can have growth, freedom, and wealth until tomorrow, no code becomes the next big skill that changes the future of humanity. That's what I'm all about. Hello, my name is Abdulaziz, and from an ethical hacker to a European Ivy League business graduate, to a hypnotherapist, to a growth marketer, I've lost everything twice, and now I'm rebuilding my life one more time, 1% a day. The No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter are for the makers and founders who have the proactivity, perspective, and persistence to go on this journey with me and get the answers from experts, as well as the stories of other makers about money, marketing, and mindsets, so that makers become earners, earners become founders, and founders get freedom and create wealth. And thank you so much for the support. This podcast is now ranking nicely on Apple in the entrepreneurship category. Top 200 in San Francisco, top 60 in Germany, top 50 in the UK, top 30 in Sweden, top 25 in Italy, and top 25 in India. So please keep rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing. My guest today is awesome. It's an honor, a privilege, and every one of those honorary words that I can describe this experience. His name is Martin Lancy from Barbados to the Netherlands, to Rwanda, to the Emirates, to San Francisco, from Microsoft to Google to LinkedIn. He is now responsible for the strategy and business development, mobile growth at LinkedIn. And this episode is an exploration of his mind, mistakes, and the insight that made him successful. Martin, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Assis. And I just want to say that I really appreciate your energy, your positivism, your entrepreneurial spirit. And I appreciate this opportunity to talk. Thank you. You are welcome. And I believe in life there are so many great people who have so much to say and in their minds so many lessons, but they're focused so much on building their life and the next big thing that they don't have as much of the opportunity to share the wisdom with the world and you are one of them that the more you can share the more people can get inspired and benefit especially knowing the mistakes because there is a problem in our culture of almost deifying successful people thinking that they were always so perfect so successful with no mistakes at all which is not true then, to begin, I'm thinking about a format where we go through your life from lesson by lesson, 
that opened your eyes to a way of living or a reality about life or something about the way to be that will get you more of what you want in life. So if this is possible, can you think back, what was that first lesson or experience that you had in life that made you understand life at a deeper level? You know, if you come together, you uh, you go a lot further than if you try to go alone. And I think that base of having a family with, with a loving mom and a sister uh, was really important for me to to understand that I, although I was only four, five, six years old at the time, there you have a responsibility. You're part of this family. And uh, we, we had a great time. This is interesting. Do you then approach life in a way now where you don't focus too much on uh, your own like skill development or your own glory, but rather think about growing a team and working in a team way and always thinking that as a team, you'll win much more than individually. Absolutely. I love that question. I think it's a, it's an old African proverb that goes, if, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's that's both for, for people's professional and personal lives. So for me in particular, I strongly believe in if you if you really focus on building out the depth of your relationships, that you will achieve much bigger things uh, by working with other people. And uh, and it's also a lot more fun. I think, um, you know, to, to your point, like being a lone wolf is, is really not that enjoyable. Sometimes it is. I think everybody needs a little bit of me time. You know, for some people, it's just 10 minutes a day. And for some people, it might, for example, be an hour a day. Uh, they need to exercise. I think it's important for everyone to figure out what their goals are and, and write these down and live by them. So um, just remind yourself of how you think you want to live your life. And to me, that that's, to your point, very important. Uh, it's a good memory that um, I much rather work with a lot of people than do things on my own. And that was also for, for my family's case. And then also, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I'll stop right there. No, it's wonderful, actually. It reminds me of a book that I read about, it was a scientific study of what is cool and what does the brain find that it considers to be cool and why are things cool or not, which is already a fascinating concept by itself. But there was a chapter saying that the most difficult decision for human beings is to know who to trust. Because in evolutionary terms, if you trust the wrong person, you're dead. It's done. So you spoke about depth of relationships. Then do you have some kind of criteria or things to look for? Because to go for depth, there is an opportunity cost if you invest in the wrong person. Do you have like some way of uh, differentiating or deciding or a criteria to say, okay, this person, I will invest in them. They will be part of my team and we'll go deep together versus someone else. You think, okay, they're nice, but they're not worth that deeper, more exclusive relationship. That's a really interesting question. I think, you know, to start from, from the beginning, um, I try to give everyone I meet the opportunity um to to build a relationship um i you know everyone has unconscious bias and i'm trying to be more aware of this and typically i try to follow my gut and 
sometimes my gut tells me, ah, I don't really feel like investing in this relationship. But especially then what I try to do is focus my energy on understanding why. And I think especially the people that we don't understand or maybe we feel scared by, those are typically the relationships where if you invest more in, you get a lot more back because there's more to learn. You know, if, for example, if I talk to someone who's very similar to me, there's probably not much to learn. So even though it might feel very comfortable to invest in that relationship and easily agree with what that person says, there's not much to learn there. And it's not a lot of value to bring to the table in most instances. And to, 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 um, to answer your question, yes, I do. I think um, character values uh, are, are part of building that trust. So trust in one word is the answer to your question where what is my criteria for really investing in a deep relationship? And trust the way that I look at it is I define trust as consistency over time. So really knowing what, what you can expect from someone. And that's always been my mission as well when I show up um, at work where you know we have, we have a reputation. And the reputation is effectively how you want the world to see you. And that's something that you can change. When you meet new people, you can build a completely new reputation. But on the, on the other side of reputation is what's really you, which is your character, which is based on your values. And, you know, I think it's important to write down those values so you always have a true north of yourself so you can just be true to yourself. And I think that type of philosophy builds an authenticity in a person. And you can sense that when someone's being authentic. And typically when someone's being authentic, I, in my experience, they're also very trustworthy because they're very confident and, and self-aware of who they are. And to me, that's, that's a big sign that there is a potential deeper relation to be built and enjoyed. I'll pause right there. Uh, I'd love to, love to hear from you if that made sense. And also don't want to talk too much. Yes, actually, I couldn't agree with you more. It reminds me of that Charlie Munger saying that the best way to get what you want in life is to deserve it not through tricks or, you know, trying to push buttons or sneaky ways. So it's very, very true. And I'm noticing something. You spoke about uh, the human biases and how when you meet people who are different from you, you actually, I know you were speaking about the blind spots that they can clarify or uh, light up or shed light on them, which will show you something you didn't see before. But that is totally contrary to human nature since the biases are ingrained in us. So was there an experience or a moment or a story that made you think, okay, I was similar to all human beings before where I was a slave to my biases, but no more, I'll be careful and make sure to, uh, to not just follow blindly that in-group or confirmation bias, etc. And I'll be more open-minded and maybe a story about when you did that and it was so fruitful and beneficial. Sounds good. When I, when I was eight years old, I grew up in the northern part of the Netherlands with my mom and my sister in this village of 60,000 people, very close to a farm where um, they were producing flowers. And at age eight, I took a wheelbarrow and I, I went to one of the farmers and I asked, can I please get some of these flowers in my wheelbarrow? Let's start with 50. And then I will sell them door to door and I'll come back to you with the money. And then we split 50-50. And that experience was really fun because I knocked that day I knocked on about 200 different doors and I realized there's everyone is different. 
when you talk to 200 people in one day, you realize some are in an extremely good mood and they would like to talk with you. Some are in a bad mood and they don't want to talk with you. Some, some people thought that I was stealing the flowers from the farm and immediately kicked me away. And other people were intrigued that this, this young guy was at their door selling flowers. So I think for me, it was eye-opening in the sense that there's a lot of different people out in this world. But still, that was just one small village in the Netherlands. And then when I started traveling um, at a young age, so now I'm 35 years old and I've been very fortunate uh, to have traveled to 86 countries. Um, and the, the reason why I always wanted to travel is to really learn and understand different cultures. So at a young age, I decided to move to Barbados to get closer to my father, uh, which was amazing. And I'm very close to both of my parents today and they're, they're, they're awesome people. And having that first experience of moving from the Netherlands to go to Barbados, which is in the Caribbean, predominantly black, um, completely different accent, even though it's English, it's hard to understand in the beginning. It's a beautiful paradise island. But if you live there and you finish your high school there, you're just dealing with completely, uh, it's just life. And life as usual, right? And they're, they're, I think that first experience when you live abroad is really important because you learn, one, you are new. Everyone else has already been there for a long time. So it's, it's your responsibility to adapt and make friends and making friends is relatively easy as long as you're really interested in people and you love people and you ask a lot of questions and people like it typically when you're interested in their in their in their lives and um that was that was a good success but those things didn't really resonate to to me until i moved to another country so then i went to spain for half a year and i i remember my time in Barbados struggling in the beginning because i wasn't really making any friends to most people there, I was really seen as a foreigner who doesn't, you know, appreciate or understand the culture and the music we listen to, because I would listen to my, my different types of music, for example. And it, so the lesson there is really adaptability, but at the same time, don't lose your personality or your authenticity, because you, it, some people confuse those two, and and I definitely confused them at some point where. I thought I was doing the right thing by being adaptive, but in fact, I was pushing away my own personality to be liked by other people. But I think there's a there's a sweet medium in the, in the middle where you can do both. You can continue to be your authentic self, but you can also be adaptable and meet other people through those cultures. And I think the more you travel, um, especially across different continents that are not similar to one another, there's just so much to learn how people live their lives differently from, you know, what you think was possible growing up in one village. And I think there's so much value in that because if you've, if you've been exposed to different cultures, different people, then it's a little easier to walk in their shoes and to understand how they feel and how they think about the world and maybe how they like to be approached by you in order to build your relationship. And that means that you, once you've traveled a little bit more, it becomes a lot easier to make connections. You can say, oh, actually, I speak one word in your language, or I've been there, and I understand that part of your culture, and that dish was delicious, and immediately you have a connection. And you also become less harsh and less judgmental, because you realize there's just not one good way to live. There's just not one group of people or culture that's better than the other everyone has a different culture and there's a lot of beauty and fun 
to explore all these different cultures and, and take the bits and pieces that you love and try to somehow integrate them into your own life. That's, um, that's really what I remember from, from traveling and uh, the value that I get from that. What I am hearing is that you love to learn. And I'm going to comment two things. You spoke about in Barbados how it was difficult to make friends, but when you moved to Spain, it clicked that you need to be interested in people, ask questions, which is one of the maxims of self-development that your weakness today will be your strength tomorrow because you have a big, big motivation and incentive to work on it. And the second is uh, there is a legend in, in advertising from the 1900s, early 1900s, his name is Claude Hopkins, and he has a book called My Life in Advertising, which is his uh, autobiography. And in it, he has similar experience where he says, as a child, he took a comic book to his uncle who came to visit, and he was telling him, look, look, this is so interesting, I love it so much. And his uncle didn't care, he was like, I don't care. And that was, he said, in that moment I understood that what I love doesn't mean that other people will love, so I should spend my life learning about other people because I cannot really predict how other people are because they're not me. But before that moment, he thought everyone was similar to him, which is uh, similar to what you spoke about when you knocked on the doors of 200 people or more to sell those 50 flowers. Then you discovered some people can be grumpy, some very friendly, some other people can be stingy, maybe some other people rude, other people, they will just support you by buying. Some are flower lovers, some are romantic. I'm sure there are all these variations. So to ask you about this, I'm noticing that in many ways, the biggest incentive you have to learn about other cultures is self-improvement and learning in that you learn about people, yes, and you get to know them, which is beautiful, and you discover new relationships, which is great, and to take parts from everything to create the uh, new or better you that is made from the best of what exists out there, and you can only know it by discovering it. Did I understand correctly? Or if not, or if yes, can you comment on this and share about your learning philosophy and drives? Aziz, that was very impressive. The way you played it back is exactly what, what I tried to say, but you said it in a much more eloquently way. I'm also impressed by how your brain works. I feel like you have, um, you have thousands of books just, just in your head and, and ready to use that knowledge whenever, whenever you want. But that, that's, that's exactly it. I think... Um, you know, my, my learning is that when you grow up in a small village somewhere, even a big city, that is your world. That's all you know. And then, you know, obviously I'm 35 now, so then the internet came and you're a little bit more exposed to what else is out there. But unless you, you know, it's one thing to read a book about a different culture and you'll learn a little bit about it. Um, and if that's the first book you read about a different culture, it will feel like a lot. So that's a great first step. But I really do believe that, you know, you, if you go out there and you really smell a place and engage with someone and ask lots of questions, there's just so much value in that. And, it does, you know, you don't have to be rich to travel. I, uh, I've slept in uh, many um, $2 a night hostels and that was fine. And typically that's the best way to travel anyway, once you're still young and you don't really need that type of comfort. 
you'll, you'll meet a lot of people because you're sharing a room. Uh, you know, there's just 20 beds set up in one hostel. And uh, I, I wish I could still do that. Now I have a family and, you know, it's, it's just, especially now with COVID, somewhat impossible. But yes, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. Thank you very much. And for the kind words, I do that actually with people. I invite them. They speak about their startup. And then I look for what is uh, like the structure of good marketing. And then in the end of the episode, I just give them the structured marketing thing. And they seem to like it and say similar things to you that I say it so nicely. So thank you. I'm glad that I can do it with people too, not just uh, about like startup ideas. To ask you though, something which is although now i keep thinking about the, the rotterdam um what i i used to go there also to hostels and stay and meet so many great people so that's now the thought on my mind it it was very nice for 10 euros a, a night you can have a really nice bed with really cool people who are exploring the city or coming there and it's so many lives intersecting like in those um, TV series or in those books where you go to the tavern and there are travelers from all over the world just speaking and sharing stories about the distant lands. And that's, I guess, hostels are the modern day to meet fellow travelers from distant places and feel a bit like a pirate of the Caribbean, <laughs> which is very nice. I would like to ask you one thing. Do you have a big, huge mistake in your life that happened or that you did? And then you thought, my God, this is bad. And I will make sure to never be in this situation or to do this again. And then what precautions or changes did you like, did this lead to in your life so that from then afterwards, you knew that you were living better? Love those questions. I think there, there's two things. I don't have any examples right now, but I'll explain what I mean. And then hopefully my examples will come later. So I think one, the mistake of not taking responsibility. For example, uh, I, I've done many things wrong in my life. I've made many mistakes at work, at school, or maybe how you know I treated people instead of being interested. Maybe I was not interested or disrespectful at times even, especially when I was a lot younger. And I think that's that's a missed opportunity because if you don't take responsibility, if you don't apologize for what you've done wrong and show that you take that ownership, you can never be happy. You can never be a real leader. You can never be trusted or respected by anyone. So I think taking responsibility is really important in everything you do in your life. And especially when you do something wrong, right? We, we all make mistakes. It's human to make mistakes. It's uh, part, maybe it's bad judgment, maybe it's lack of inexperience. So I think if you make a mistake and then to really focus on the lesson to be learned, that is the most important thing. Um, and funnily enough, like human beings, we have the capability to have a bird's eye perspective and analyze our own behavior, but we hardly ever use it. It's so much easier to ask uh, your partner or a really close friend or family member like, Hey, tell me, you know, how, how did I do in that interview? How did I, you know, come across in that talk we had? And can you please let me, can you, can you please give me your feedback and your honest feedback? Because that's the best way to learn. I think that's one. The, the other one where I, I think I, what I've done in the past is if you make one mistake and then you, you try to cover it up with a second mistake, it always gets worse. 
it's like you, you build up this compound um, or loose of karma and it will come back to you and bite you in, in the rear because if you make one mistake, it, again, like just take the responsibility and, and say, look, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, this is what I believe I should have done. And um, I, w- I would like to you know, show you my respect for you because I, w- I want you to acknowledge that I made a mistake. And from now on, I won't. Uh, please keep me honest to this promise. And how, how, can, how can I make it better? I think that's in a nutshell. There's yeah, specific examples, so many. <laughs> well, actually, what I am hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, and my question will be, what's your philosophy on leadership? Because what I'm hearing, you repeat the word trust and trustworthiness. I mean, like, you repeat the word trust, trust, at least three times now. And what I'm hearing is to you, you are in a phase of your life where leadership is a high value or an important goal. And that leadership to you is like the personification of trustworthiness. But we don't judge our own trustworthiness only. It's because people's perspectives are different than ours. So we need feedback on whether we came across in the same way that we meant to be trustworthy And therefore, trust is not really in us, it's in other people that we get by being trustworthy in their own paradigm of the world and their own perspective. Did I understand this um, thing correctly that I am hearing from you? And whether yes or not, what is your philosophy and biggest lessons about being a leader? Yes. Absolutely. Again, I think you you absolutely crushed it. Uh, you're completely correct in how you played it back and how you analyzed my, uh, my my very long version of what could have been a much shorter and concise answer. Thank you for doing that. That's a that's a good skill. And um, you know what I think about leadership and being a good leader. It's I think really good leaders what they what they do and what I try to do uh, when I'm in a leadership position or manage people or people look at me for guidance at work. I I want to, again, just be myself, my full authentic self, um, but also including showing my vulnerability that I'm, I'm a person and that I make mistakes and I have uncertainties. And sometimes when there's external things happening, even though I try not to spend too much energy on things that I cannot control, sometimes it does take the better of me. For example, 2020 was a rough year for everyone. And sometimes in those tough moments, the best thing you can do is just be honest with yourself. And if someone asks you, a colleague, even if it's someone reporting to you, like, how are you doing? Well, actually, right now, I'm not feeling good. You know, and I think showing that vulnerability also shows that you're a real and normal person, which means you can be trusted. Someone that is always smiling is often perceived as a sort of like a sad clown. Like it cannot be real. Uh, which is why a lot of times people that are extremely positive all the time um, are are perceived as not very authentic people because it's just impossible. It's not human. Even if you're very strong and you you, you only focus on the positive, there's always a moment where you know you need to show your vulnerability as a leader in order again to build that trust. I think that's one piece of it. The other piece is coming showing up in in how you would like everyone that reports to you to show up. So if if you really care about how people treat each other, then you must show and lead by example to do exactly that and explain why. 
I think it's one thing just to show it, but I think it's also very important to repeat again and again why we as a team or why we as a company do what we do and understand why it's important. And um, in terms of leadership, I also believe that you're really setting the, the, the beat for the drum, sort of speak, and the pace. And that means you must have put a lot of thought into how you want to manage your team or your company. And it's really important that the way that you share this with people comes across very clearly. So it's not just like, oh, hey, I had this thought and let me share this with you. But actually, no, actually, you know, I've been working on this for quite a while and I'd like to share this deck with you. But before I do so, you know, I, I would like to discuss the strategy with you and get your feedback so we can work on this together. So the other piece is really to you know, get people involved and empower them. And I think Steve Jobs, um, some people really didn't like him, some people, um, but they maybe respected him a lot uh, because apparently he had a tough personality. And one, one of the things that I think he did really well is that his philosophy to build a team and a company was that you don't hire good people and tell them what to do. No, you hire good people so they tell you what to do, right? And I think it's very true in the sense that only when you fully empower someone to show their value and, and, you know, they should think for themselves on how they can best help within their role and responsibility and even outside of their own role in that company. That's when you get the best out of people. That's also what I say to people that, you know, report or have reported to me when they say, well, I work for you. I'm like, no, actually I work for you. You know, I'd like, I'm here to, to, to just help you with everything I know and navigate certain things in this company. and if that means that you want to get my skills or my expertise so you can do that somewhere else within a year because then you can that's the best career path for you then i'll support that as well and um i'll pause right there Aziz, because i have a tendency to just keep on talking but your, your questions are excellent so i'd like to know if that made any sense thank you actually it is awesome and there are at least three things that i can contribute including there was a microsoft executive who left and started his own healthcare uh, company that will change the healthcare net landscape for healthier living in the world. And one of the things I remember he said is the higher you go up in the chain, the less work that you should be doing and the more you should be doing things to empower your uh, team and other people to do their work rather than doing the work yourself, because that is not the highest and best use of your time. And I feel and i sense that you're mentioning this as well as maybe the gary v thing where he says now that i'm the ceo i'm basically a babysitter <laughs> for everyone who works in my company and the third thing is the jordan peterson um i remember it from a lecture where he said look each person their role to the group is to contribute their own perspective so that it will uh, add a piece that will reduce the blind spots of the whole group. And therefore, you don't tell people what to do, but you receive from them the piece that you're missing, that they have inside them, so that all together you have more pieces and you see the world from more perspectives. And I sense that that is, in many ways, your philosophy for leadership, where you don't try to dictate what the puzzle should be because that is not reality and actually this is why you said 
uh, you want to be you want to be a normal human being and i sensed your drive for vulnerability and authenticity is more as well as not reading about countries but actually experiencing them physically it's because you value reality much more than non-reality or our own thoughts and mythologies and uh, other things about reality i feel and i sense that you are more of what Ayn Rand calls a first-hander, which means that you value feedback and data from reality over any guesses, opinions, or things that are not in direct contact with reality, which she calls second-hand. Being a second-hander are people who get opinions from other people and consider them to be the truth, while more you are you prefer to live in the real world and to experience the world rather than opinions about the world. Did I understand this correctly? And if so, do you have any comment on this? 100%. That's exactly it and how I try to live my life. And I think why, why that's important was very well explained by my current vice president, uh, Scott, at LinkedIn. Because the first thing when I or someone else on the team makes a mistake is not like he basically immediately asked like hey what did you learn from that what's the key takeaway and that's so important because if he just wants to know like okay but what can we learn from this as a company so we don't do it again um not be upset because otherwise people no longer take risks and without taking risk and exploring different avenues to grow your business that's not good for the company so i i there's so much value in that and um the other piece that I think is important as well in leadership to your point of like, how do you get people to give you feedback, which is very, certain cultures very dif- difficult. Well, I love the Toyota example in, in Japan, where every new employee in the factory with after their first week needs to stand in a red square and tell, tell everybody in management where there's room for improvement. You know, and, especially in that culture it's very it's not typical to share that sort of feedback especially upwards and i think it's it's great that upwards feedback is also valued so much and actually rewarded and that's another thing at linkedin that i think we do really well and leadership in particular is that we don't all only celebrate the deals that we do that are good we also celebrate the deals we decide to not do (laughs) i think sometimes especially in business development strategy m a type of business fields people have the drive to close a deal sign a deal but it's very important to realize when you have to walk away from a deal or recommend against resourcing and investing in it that's also a skill so in order to celebrate that to say oh we've worked really hard on this for three months and we decided not to do it for these reasons and these are the lessons we take from that to your point again like that reality without making assumptions and without caring too much about you know, the emotional side of things, but really focusing on the da- data we have and, and writing it down and documenting it well is super important, I think. Just, to, again, be authentic. And and, and it, it shows your character, your values, and through that, you will build trust in your personal and your professional life. Thank you. Actually, it's wonderful. You're saying so many great things. One, it reminds me of Edward de Bono. I am sure, or I hope at least you know him, who is from Malta and since the 70s or even the 60s, he's the foremost expert on creativity and ideation. And 
he has like 40 books. <laughs> anyway, I read many of them because I love the guy and creativity to me is fascinating. And there was a section where he said, look, there is no limit to improvement, anything, even what is working well now. If you dedicate time to find ideas to make it better, you will make it better. It's not always worth it to do so, but it's always worth it to spend time trying to improve what exists. And the second is, I read a story about Thomas Edison, although I watched that new movie about Nikola Tesla and it it, it wasn't shown there, but that each time an experiment failed in his lab, he would dance actually. And people will think he's crazy and he will say, well, we found one way that things don't work so we can eliminate it and know that we are closer or we learned something that allows us to be closer to what works. But finally, I want to ask you, I mean, not finally as final question, but finally in this whole thing, whole segment or whatever, you spoke about uncertainty and that if you have uncertainty, you should be transparent about it. And that is perfect. As well as you said that you should um, record any learnings that you have, any things that worked or didn't work, which is very valuable. But at the same time, it's like Nietzsche. What Nietzsche says is that, We are humans who need certainty in an uncertain world. And therefore, many times we create certainty that isn't even in the real world. But it seems to us because our brain is a pattern creation mechanism. So to you as who you are, uh, how do you approach that possibility that in life things might make sense, but they're not real? They're just we live in a probabilistic world and something can be a pattern for some time and we think that we learned it but if we don't challenge those assumptions maybe in a one year or five years they're not true anymore but we consider them as learning and we're proud of them so in general how do you deal with uncertainty how do you approach both learning and having some certainty while understanding that we live in a world that is only only a probabilistic world and there is no guarantee that anything that worked before will work again like those uh, financial return uh, warnings or what do you call them like those small things where they say oh we had 20 percent roi in the last 10 years and then they say past performance does not guarantee future results so can you please comment on this i I think it's an incredible question i also feel like we're we're entering the the world of the matrix to some extent it's a very deep question uh, I love it because uh, it's, it's also somewhat philosophical. And I think, you know, how, how do I do with uncertainty? How do I make sense of, you know, and how do I battle some of this bias of regency, right? For example, we had 20% profit last quarter, just as an example. So we expect again 20%. And, and, and why? I think um, in one word, reflection is really important. So every at the end of each day and at the end of each week and especially in the weekend when you get a really a uh, break um it's i find it really important to reflect on my week and focus on the few things to your point exactly when was there a lot of bias in here and what is this really based on and sh- should we continue to think that way i think it's important that we understand what we do and why we do it and unfortunately i do see a lot of people that are effectively um, sailing boats without a rudder, meaning they just go wherever the wind blows them, and then they complain and are unhappy about where they end up because they end up stranded on some beach somewhere as to where if, if, 
you know, if, if you put the rudder in yourself and you, 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 you learn how to sail and take control over your life and you write down what your goals are, you will become a lot happier and more effective in whatever you try to do, both professionally and, and personally, right? So for me, what I do at the end of each workday is, is look again at my calendar the day after and I decide, okay, these are the three big hairy goals I want to accomplish tomorrow. And that's where I'll focus my energy on. And for me, that really works. Because otherwise, you just wake up and you start answering emails. And that's also the running joke at most of these big tech companies in Silicon Valley. If people ask you what to do, you typically answer, I'm an inbox manager, right? There's between 200 and 500 emails flying around every day. And, and if, if that's really what you do, you're just uh, you're wasting your energy on something that you, you know other people want you to do. But you should really focus on what's important for your growth, the company's growth, and your career. So I think reflecting is important because only once you reflect, take a step back, take a breath. For, for me, it's, for example, surfing, going out in the ocean. And only when there's absolutely no time to think, that's when these things happen. Uh, for some people, it's taking a shower. And that's all of a sudden when you have that time to reflect and you think of something and, and take a lesson from that. And then to answer your question in terms of how do we deal with uncertainty, I, I would actually flip that question around. And I, I would say, I thrive on uncertainty. I love it, uh, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I I try to challenge myself every day in terms of my job. I don't think I have job security at all. I don't want to have job security. I want to continue to think of other things to do and build in the company. And even to be super candid, I also, uh, you know, when, when a recruiter reaches out, I'm sometimes interested to hear more about the role, even if it's just to learn from, from somebody, from the company. And if it's a BD person, I would love to share notes and strategies and help out. In terms of uncertainty, I think you can you can train yourself to enjoy it um, rather than to be afraid of it and and have it you know use it to your benefit. There's I think I don't know who said this, but somebody once said I think it's even a song. There's only two things certain in life, right? It's it's death and taxes. So everything else is effectively uncertain. And I think that's also the beauty of life that we don't really know what's going on. I would not like to know. For example, um, what happens tomorrow? And there's, it's just too much fun right now to do it this way. So, but I do, I do believe, and I'll, I'll keep it just thirty more seconds, uh, and then I'd, I'd love to hear your next question and keep this really fun conversation going. I surf sometimes big waves, and it's at that point where you're paddling really, you're judging when a wave comes in, a big one, and you're judging it to understand, okay, am I going to make this, and from which part should I start paddling, and will I make the drop or not? There is no, you have to fully commit uh, when you surf big waves, because if you don't, you will most likely go over the lip, over the falls and, and wipe out and it will hurt. And sometimes you fully commit and you still crash. But there's also the value in that, because I think you said this earlier on, you know, it's about repetition and your brain is a muscle just like any other muscle in your body and how you act and function is also just muscle memory. And, you know, practice makes permanent. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. The more you do something and the more you learn about it, the better you get at it. And I think for me, surfing and fully committing to big waves helps me to also fully commit to things that I strongly believe in. Because if you don't fully commit, for sure, it will not work. This is awesome. And I remember that perfect practice makes perfect. It's not only practice, which is that what you're saying well it reminds me now i i feel like an encyclopedia but it reminds me of three books 
one by James Webb Young. It's called The Technique for Producing Ideas, and it's short. And he uses that ability, like how to fill your subconscious with the data to let it just digest it so that when you're surfing or you're showering, the idea will come. So it's more about using that process and systematizing it. And he wrote it in 1940. It actually was a speech he gave, and it's the uh, transcript of his speech, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. The second thing book is by Leonard. I can't really always say his name correctly, but it's like Mlodina um, or Mlodinlo or something, which is called How Randomness Rules Our Lives, and it works in what you were mentioning about how things we ha- don't have any certainty. There are only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And, and uh, well, some people are trying to say that, well, taxes will be certain, but death not for a long time, and about committing. In Jim Scamp's book, which is Start With No, which is a negotiation book, there is a section where he talks about his time as a fighter pilot in the U.S. uh, Air Force. And what his sergeants always told him, make decisions. All the time, commit to a decision. Why? If it's wrong, you can change it. Make another decision and you'll change it again. Which also reminds me of something that the Navy SEALs uh, say. They say, okay, they say many funny things like uh, embrace the suck or the only easy day was yesterday. (laughs) But they say 90-70-50, which is that any decision you make, 90% of the time, you only have 70% of the information you need and 50% of the time you'll be wrong. So make another decision. So that's their motto that they teach uh, each, you know, they teach to the Navy SEALs that 90% of the time, be comfortable that you'll only have 70% of the information you need and that you'll be 50% of the time wrong. So make it again. About this, I would like to ask you about what do you do that makes you have that more, that access, success, results, creativity, etc., that you notice most people don't do? Like, what is the difference or the elusive obvious, as Moshe Feldenkrais calls it in his book, which is so obvious yet elusive to everyone? What is that thing that differentiates you that you try to do? Maybe I am guessing it will be reflection and self-awareness and authenticity. But what else that you notice in people that if they did it more like you do, there'll be more success in the world and more effectiveness? Thank you, Asis. I love everything you said. Um, and I, just to come back to your, you know, committing to decisions, I fully agree with you. It's better to make a decision than not make a decision because then someone else will make it for you. And at least if you make the decision, it's based on your information on everything you believe is correct. However, in that process, there's also it's really important to get feedback from people around you, right? And um, I think uh, how I measure my my friendships and my relationships is by if they can give me constructive feedback, if they, if they can point out, hey, Martin, you know what you did here yesterday? I don't think you should have done it that way. I think you should have this way for that reason. And this might be difficult for you to hear, but I think it's important because of value or friendship. And I love that because if you just have people around you that say yes to everything, you're not really getting any value from those people. And again, as Steve Jobs' example, I think he was really good at it. He, he for example, uh, would have a few people in a room not introduce them. And then he would ask his head of uh, mergers and acquisitions, 
what do you think of this uh, this this software company? <clears throat> and then the head of um, merger M and A would say, actually, I think it's rubbish. Um, it's super overvalued. Uh, we should definitely not consider it. And then Steve would say, well, this is their co this is their co founder and and CEO. Uh, I want you to meet and. If that person that works and reports to Steve would have not been honest, he would have been fired. So it's it's not about creating comfort. It's it's all about creating honesty, which again comes back to trust. And and trust is you know being consistent over time. So to answer your question, like what what you know, how do I attribute the the success that I have had in my life, both personally and professionally? It's really about building relationships and and having the the, the capability to build new relationships. And that's really a combination of bringing my full self to work, which sometimes is not easy. Uh, I, I can be quite goofy and, and, and laugh a lot, make a lot of jokes. And sometimes that can be interpreted, especially in American business culture, Silicon Valley too, um, as uh, you know, not being mature enough, or not being serious enough. So there's a fine, there's a balance there that I walk uh, almost every day. But building those relationships um and and building that trust is really the, the recipe to my success and then the, the so that is a personality that i have developed over the years but it's also just who i am and my character and that comes because of my environment uh, and, and growing up in different places and obviously my parents and and my sister but then the other piece that is really important that um some some professionals sometimes tend to not focus on as much as, as I think y- you should if you want to be successful is focus on being re- the best at what you do. And if possible, in an area that not a lot of people know what to do and how to be great at it. Because if you create create your scarcity in a field of work, then companies will come after you. People would want to work with you. Investors will come to you and, and, and ask for your opinion. So you you know, now I'm doing a little bit of consultancy on the side because people have found out that I you know, am the preload specialist within Silicon Valley. And there's only about 50 people uh, in Silicon Valley and globally that, that know that. So it's really a, a quadrant, two by two, where in order to be successful and to me also happy, success I measure really is happy and the depth of my relationships is a combination of doing something you're really good at and preferably the best. And if so, it's something that's not just everybody, um, for example, selling advertisement, every, everybody can learn how to do that. And there's a lot of people that do that. So that's not very scarce from that perspective. And then the other part is just your personality and, and being trustworthy and, and having the ability to connect with people and build that trust in, in the minimum time possible. Because if people trust you, they, they're more likely to listen and really listen. And, and then they're more likely to vouch for you and support your project and support your whatever you need to, to build together as a team. Again, I have the tendency to, uh, to go way over time, so I'll pause right there. Hopefully, I did answer your question, as is. Uh, let me know, please. Thank you. It's wonderful. And now I'm thinking, look, you understand the human biases and actually the meta bias, which is that we cannot really fully see ourselves because we are ourselves. So we are in that system. Yes, you, you spoke about going meta or having that bird eye view. But to know this, what are the stories or the anecdotes or those experiences that let you know the signal from the noise to understand, okay, I have this skill. This is a scarce skill. I will be one of the best in the world at it because what happens to most humans is that 
there is so much noise, it's not easy to know what that sliver of genius can be or would be. So what would be your advice to people in finding their scarce ability? And did you have a story or an experience that guided you and let you know, okay, now I got it. I know what I can be really scarcely great at and one of the best in the world at and be happy? Love, love that question. I think in business school and in general, especially when you're, when you, you know, when, for example, you're growing up, you see, you, you, you're made to believe that you should follow a certain pattern in order to be successful. It's effectively why people go to, go to school, universities, read books. It's like, what's the formula? If I do A plus B plus C equals success, happiness, etc. But but oftentimes I don't think there is a formula as, as for that type of success and happiness. I really think someone should figure it out for themselves and be authentic. I think authenticity again is sort of like the 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 most important attribute to one's success. Because if you're trying to be someone else and just follow a formula, pe- people will feel that. People will see that and that's typically not how deep relationships are built um and um so i agree absolutely with what you said for me the first time that i really learned like okay i have completely missed the signals here and i've made a mistake so from now on i'm going to focus more on this is when i was so when i was studying in in rotterdam um just just one year after you same same university same education same great master's degree I was also part-time working three different jobs, but the one that I was working at the time was, um, this is an example from Suit Supply. So I was selling suits. So I was dressed up, suit, tie, uh, you know, shoes, everything. And then um, this client walked in. He asked like, hey, where are the size 50 suits? I'm looking for something subtle because I work in finance. So I showed him where these suits are. He put one on and he looked at the sleeve length that popped underneath the suit. And he said, I'd like this to be a little bit more subtle. It should only be about half a centimeter. I don't want to show this much shirt underneath my suit sleeve. And I I immediately responding to what I thought was the truth and what I strongly believed and was educated at the time that actually you should show more like a centimeter and a half, two centimeters, because when you show more fabric, it breaks more nicer with the suit. And it, it basically boosts how you look and how people perceive you. And that's also the etiquette, how people wear it in the professional world. And he said, sure, but this is how I personally prefer it. And I said, okay, but I didn't really understand the lesson for me was that I I already knew that if I had looked at his body language, I could have caught those signals and I could have not make myself look like a fool was just trying to sell something by not listening. I should have listened and, and listening sometimes is not just in words, but it's in body language. So my key takeaway for this and what I've applied to the rest of my life after that moment, that sort of light bulb moment for me was like, okay, really focus on people's body language because they're sending a signal. And if you catch that early enough, you can change the narrative. You can change the conversation. You can still come out winning. And and another example would be executive communication for me. So, you know, now that I am much closer to, uh, big tech companies and their and their C staff uh, executives, sometimes it's hard for me to make the shift from when I walk out from lunch and just have a fun chat with somebody or send a quick email to someone where I don't really think too much about what I say. But in executive communication, 
it's completely different. You have to be very concise. You have to be very precise. You really have uh, structure because these executives receive thousands and thousands of messages and emails every day, and they just don't have the time to read your very long email. So it needs to be a very concise email. And if you say something, make sure it makes sense so you don't have to repeat yourself. And in, in a room in San Francisco with some of these executives, I just remember that I started rambling and I went on and on and everybody was confused. And, and that was my cue to read their body language to say, okay, this is time for me to just say, quick recap, this is what, it, this is what I meant and this is what we should do. Thank you. Any questions? That's all. So be very concise. Ask feedback. Always ask feedback because that's the moment that when you show your vulnerability, you've made your recommendation. So you're not, you're not incompetent. You're, you're actually confident in what you know, but you're also open to learn and get feedback from everyone else or to make a better, better decision. So I think those, those are my like key takeaways. And it, it's about body language, but then also I'd like to make the link that it's about your gut feeling. And most of the time when I don't follow my gut, I make the wrong decision. So I think just trusting your gut and going with your gut, there's, there's a lot of, um, it, it's difficult to make a mistake if you go with your gut. Great. So if I understood you correctly, this is like the structure. You follow your gut, and when you are aligned and behaving in the way that your gut is telling you, you are being vulnerable and authentic. And when you show up vulnerable and authentic, you are doing your best in that moment. But then you open your eyes to the feedback from people to know what you are doing, whether it's actually the right thing or the effective thing or the kind thing that will get them the message or the result that that communication is aimed at or that interaction or that um, productive situation. And then I have a question that might be a bit interesting. If you are getting feedback, which you mentioned a while ago, we've been speaking for a while, and maybe this is like the longest episode in my thing, but it's also the most valuable, that when you did not listen to feedback, or even when you were in Barbados, and you were not so uh, showing so much of that interest, well, you said that it's about if you're fully yourself, you can be not so relatable to people. So let me ask you, does it mean when you're being authentic, but learn from feedback, you are becoming the next version of the authentic you, and then you get feedback, and you're always changing who you are, but not because you're hiding your personality, but because you're evolving that personality based on the feedback. Is this what I'm understanding, that your process is to show at your best each moment and become the next best version based on feedback? Or is this a bit of what people might understand as, well, tell people and do what people want so that they will smile at you and be happy that you agree with them, which I know you don't agree with. So can you comment on this? I love that question. I think it's really important for everyone to ask themselves that question. And I ask myself often as a sanity check, is, am, I, am I losing a piece of my personality here if I comply with what people want me to be like? say things they want me to say, you know, dress how they dress, talk like they talk, etc. Or to your point, um, you know, no, this is actually how I evolve my personality and I prefer this personality and how I am. I think as long as you ask that question to yourself and you agree that it doesn't come at a price of losing a piece of yourself, 
you're you're in good you're in a good spot um, because that means you you feel good with the decision of what you're learning and how you're shifting your personality in that sense. I think everyone's personality is is quite rigid and there's not a, a ton of you know change you can do. Um, but I think you can learn a lot and you can you can make slight changes that will make a big difference in terms of um, your success and happiness in life. And what you um, what you said earlier on, I think. The, the other important thing, especially here in the U.S., especially I think in Silicon Valley, is that, yes, you're right. It's about being authentic and vulnerable. However, it's also about being humble, but confident. And sometimes people mistake that with arrogance. I've, I've been arrogant. Uh, you know, this is what you said early on as well. Like sometimes you change. I realized, wow, eight years ago, I was actually quite arrogant in some of these business meetings. And probably therefore not very effective in building that relationship with those partners. Um, and, and then I realized, okay, I should have not been arrogant. It's good to be confident, but you have to be humble. And you can only be humble if you ask for feedback and if you show that you're authentic and vulnerable. If, if not, then people, they, they sense that. They sense that you're just trying to be someone you're not, and that means it's not authentic. And because it's not authentic, they're probably not going to trust you because why would everything else you say be true? So that's why I write down all the feedback I get, especially the parts that are most constructive, most negative, most interesting for me to learn. And I keep it in a, a Google document that I read at least once a year. And there's, there's just a lot of good there for me. Sometimes it's a good, important memory to go back and reflect and, and learn. I love that, which now the question that is popping into my mind that I was actually wanting to respect your time and end, but uh, it's important. Peter Drucker, the amazing guy, I love him. He says that in business, there are only three things that lead to profit and everything else is an expense. And you are mentioning relationships a lot. But he says, look, in your business, marketing, innovation, and relationships, that those are the sources of profit. Everything else is an expense. What is your perspective on this thought and this axiom that he shared with the world? Does it match your experience or do you have different thoughts on this? That's, that's a great question. Give me, give me five seconds to think about this one. I think um, on relationships, yes, to, to your point, because everything I, I shared already in terms of what I've learned and the mistakes I've made. Marketing, yes, because especially in my business. So for what I do, for example, is I um, work with product teams. I uh, used to work with the product teams at Google. I'm currently working with the product team very closely at LinkedIn to understand, okay, how, how do we get um, people to find value in our platform and specifically our mobile app? And there's part of that is just organic because it's a great product. People will find it organically and download it, love it, tell their friends about it, and that's how you organically grow. However, in my experience, you know, sometimes people, these companies spent millions of dollars in engineering to make that app and that product and platform incredible. But then if the organic growth is not providing the profit to make it justifiable, then you should probably, you know, spend more on marketing. Um, it could be advertising. It could be, could be, you know, if you don't have a big budget, you can be very creative about it. But without marketing, people don't understand your message, might not get the message, might get the wrong message because you're just leaving it out there. You don't, you know, define what your marketing strategy should be. Nike, for example, is incredible. Their marketing has been the same. Um, for 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 decades now, um, always focused on the athlete, always focused with a positive but very real message. 
and incredibly strong um, strong messages from their marketing team. And, and that's why they're still winning. Innovation, the third one. I think, yes, uh, because not doing anything is standing, is going back. Right? It's not just like you're, you're standing still in time, but you're actually going back because everyone around you will always innovate, which is one of the reasons why if you look at like the top five tech companies in the world, they acquire hundreds of startups each year uh, because they realize at their size, even though they incentivize people to come with their, their own employees, to come with ideas, they have these internal incubators, it's very difficult to, to, to still innovate at that, at that size because there's so much red tape, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why they tend to just buy for 500 startups uh, for the reasons that they do very innovative and they need to integrate into their own company but also because of the people at those companies that are very innovative and have a very creative mind and they need that type of talent in the company to, to rub off on other people and also to start critically looking at the current processes in, in, in place in order to become more, more innovative. And obviously Elon Musk, you mentioned him before, he, he's, I think, the best example. He never really wanted to build an electric car, but since no one else was doing it, he decided, look, for climate change and for the world, we need to, so I'll do it. And then he, he, same for space travels, same for for traffic, movement of people, transport. So now he, the boring company is making it very cost efficient, um, better for the environment and um, better for everyone effectively to start moving in, in essence. So um, I, I agree with those three. I think as with everything, it's, it's, it's a model. Um, and in this case, this model works with the examples that, that I shared for me, at least and in my experience working in Silicon Valley for about a decade now. Um, but there's probably a lot more things we can add to those lists. Great. Actually, it's wonderful. So I'll take advantage of this to ask you about like a strategy for life, actually. But it's that the VC model of investing or of trying projects or whatever, that they expect 90% to not be that great, but that that 10% or less will give them like 100x and therefore pay for everything else that failed and more. Or the Robert Kiyosaki, where he said one uh, that nine out of 10 businesses fail. So I started 10 different businesses so that it's okay. If nine fail, I'll always be winning. Do you believe? Because there are some people that say, look, Success, if you look at successful people, whether Amazon or people like that, they put all their eggs in one basket and that allowed them the focus to have that big success. While other people say you have to never bet the farm to make small bets, to try different things, knowing that 95% will fail and you're always searching for something that shows signs that it will be a success. And then you focus on that, but never, ever, ever focus and, like you said, fully commit 100% to one thing. You should always have options because you know that 95% or 99% will fail. So which camp do you espouse or both maybe or a hybrid? Or do you believe that in those people who say put your eggs in one basket no matter what people say when you look back at success? It was always someone who was crazy enough to bet everything on one thing or do you say try as many projects as you can and then look for signs of life and follow those 
That's that's a great question, and I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs. So I, this, this is a question that actually comes up very often when I when I talk to them. And be, before I answer your question, which I will directly answer, um, I will I will say this: statistically, you're right. Only one out of ten, at best, make it. Right, the rest the rest fills. So statistically, we would have to say, okay, don't put all your eggs in one basket and build ten different companies because only one of them will succeed. My answer is a hybrid model because I think it's important to fully commit, but pivot when you need to. And that comes back to your point around innovation. I think very often what I've seen with my friends and and relatives in, in, in the Bay Area is that when they start their company, they really focus on that original idea they've had. And then a year later, they're still stuck with that idea, even though it doesn't work. The market fit's not there. They're losing money. They keep on investing in the same thing to see if something changes. Maybe all of a sudden the market need will be be there. But that's effectively the definition of insanity, right? If you're doing the same thing, you expect a different outcome. So to, to that point, the successful entrepreneurs that I've seen around the two things, they fully commit. There's three things that they, they fully commit, they fully committed, but they pivot when they realize, oh, hang on, we have to continue receiving feedback continue exploring this business case and environment we operate in and what is our position within this environment. And if we need to, we need to pivot so that we can take the opportunity where it is. If our idea was great two years ago, but it no longer is, let's just not have our egos block that and let's focus on what we should be doing. That's the second thing. The third thing is have a deadline for yourself. So when you talk to successful entrepreneurs, they often say, if the company doesn't work within three years, quit. Just forget about it. Start a new one. Because if you start entrepreneurship, business building at age, for example, 30, then you probably have the energy and, and, and the guts to do it for maybe 20 years, up until you're 50 years old, if you really start companies from scratch. So if you give yourself the deadline, that means you can, to your point, three times 20, you can start seven or eight businesses if you want. And at least one of those statistically should be should be correct. So that, that's my experience, what I've seen and what I've learned and, and what I believe. You're welcome. Look, I don't want to take too much of your time, although this can go on forever. This whole conversation and the last section that you mentioned now reminds me of a great book that I highly recommend even to you that you read it, which is by Brian Christian. It's called algorithms to live by the computer science of human decisions and in it he presents all kinds of algorithms that computers use that humans can use to make a decision about like which house to choose when they buy and when to stop house hunting and choose the best one or if they had a track of good experience with restaurants when if they begin to have bad service how long to give it a chance before giving up or any kinds of decisions that have something that in in algorithmic sciences and computer sciences can be used by humans to be more effective decision makers in different scenarios in life. And I love that book. And they also have things in it that they accept. They say, for example, there are problems like the salesman's dilemma where there is no algorithm that can solve it and therefore... Those cannot be solved by uh, computers unless it's through brute force. And therefore, as a human, well, make the easiest choice that you can make. Martin, it's wonderful. 
and you are amazing. If you have any uh, like concluding remarks or words to share with the listener, and if they wish to follow you to learn more, to know more about what you do and your thoughts, what links should they go to, including LinkedIn, of course, I'm sure that is necessary. Thank you so much, Aziz. This this was this was a lot of fun, and I, I learned a ton from you. I will definitely buy uh, Brian Christian's book. Thank you so much for the recommendation. I hope t- for your audience this was um, you know there was, there was something valuable. So I will conclude by saying that for me, what was very valuable, and for most of my um, successful friends around me, is write down who who you want to be, what are your values. And, and live by those values and be consistent because that's that's really what success is. And um, I find that once you have a clear understanding of who you want to be in this life, then you will find success naturally. Thank you. And any links or ways that people, if they wish to follow you, to know what you're up to or uh, you're posting, anything? Where... Yes, please. Uh, LinkedIn. So my, um, <clears throat> my full name is, is Martin Lancy. It's spelled M-A-R-T-I-J-N. Lancy, and um, if if you reach out to me over LinkedIn, I, I will I will always respond, and I would love to love to talk and connect. So thank you very much for that opportunity, Aziz. Thank you. You are welcome. I will make sure in the description to put your LinkedIn URL as well as full name. And thank you. Honestly, I wish you a wonderful 2021 to you and everyone that you love, and to the listener. And this was amazing. I will be happy, honored, and glad to share this with my audience. And I wish you a great day. Thank you so much. This this was really, again, this was really fun and interesting. And I learned a lot more from you than, than you've learned from me that I'm sure about. So I, I think there's a lot of wisdom that you shared with me. And I, I yeah, your, your audience is lucky to have you. Thank you. 